You're listening to a message from Victory Church of the Bay Area. For more information, please visit us on our website at victoryus.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Neil Bernardino, and I am the pastor of this church. All right. We are on our fifth installment of our seven-week sermon series entitled Beyond the Signs. And we are looking at the different miracles of Jesus, which are referred to as signs and wonders in the book of John. And we're concentrating on seven of them. These are signs that point to a greater reality. Our goal is that we would go beyond the signs and the wonders that we see, and that we would see Jesus beyond the signs. Because those signs are designed to point to the reality of Christ. We will be talking about the account of Jesus walking on water. And I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verses 16 through 21. I'm sorry, we'll begin with verse 15. Receiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that your word reveals who you are. These are not just a set of words, but these words, Lord, are given to us so that we may come to know you. Lord, these are the words of eternal life. And only you, Lord Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And we pray that we would continually embrace your truth through your word. Lord, that we may come to know you more and more. And that we may bring pleasure to you and may bring glory to you. And that through us, you would reveal yourself to the world. We lift up this sermon to you. And we pray that your word would be embedded deep in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, Lord, teach us today the word of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This miracle of Jesus walking on water is actually an account that is written about in three of the four Gospels. The three Gospels that this account is written are Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke does not present this narrative, but Matthew, Mark, and John do. Since we're looking at the book of John, we will be camping on the account that is found in the book of John, in John 6, where we read from. But we will be getting some more details from the book of Matthew and the book of Mark as we go along. As you look at this account, some people say, why are there so many inconsistencies in the story? In the book of Mark, in the book of Matthew, and in the book of John, they say, they tell this story, but it has different details. And so people use that as their excuse not to believe in God's word because They say the story does not corroborate with the other Gospels. Well, let me give you just a little bit of background with this. The first Gospel that was written was the book of Mark. 
Mark was one of the first disciples, but he was not one of the twelve. He was following Jesus from a distance. Actually, Mark, in his gospel, wrote about himself, and this is a little advice that authors commonly use to refer to themselves without giving themselves away. In the book of Mark, he referred to himself as the guy who was following Jesus right as he was arrested. He was taken and he struggled and he escaped naked. So he was a young man who fled. And John is the same. John never refers to the first person in the Gospel of John. John to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's a very common literary device authors use to refer to themselves as they are part of the story. So the first gospel that was written was the book of Mark. Mark was not one of the original 12 apostles. As the church was birthed, he was with the apostles, and he probably learned a lot of these stories from the apostles because he had firsthand relationship with the apostles. And then, because of the gospel that he wrote, he wrote a pretty comprehensive gospel, and then Matthew and Luke basically based the gospel that they wrote from the book of Mark, and then adding their own details to it, to their gospel. And John was the last gospel that was written. The gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke and Matthew have been circulating before John wrote his gospel. John focuses on pretty much not the entire life and ministry of Jesus, but he focuses on a certain segment, which is primarily the latter part of Jesus' ministry and leading towards his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's his focus. But if you look at the story, you will see it's the same account, but they have different details. So the explanation there is this. Each of these gospel writers had a purpose in writing their gospel accounts. Every story that they wrote, they had a purpose in mind. They had a specific audience that they targeted. And there are times when you tell a story that you omit a few things, right? For example, you know, if I'm talking to someone here, I'm going to tell you my life story. I'm not going to say everything. I'm going to omit a few things. But if I'm talking to my best friend I'm going to repeat the entirety of my story to him. You get what I'm saying here? You see, there are times when you tell stories that you leave out certain details because you have a reason for it. You have a purpose for it. John, basically, his account is pretty simple, but he does have a detail that is not found in Matthew and in Mark. So the book of Mark tells us that after Jesus got into the boat, the winds ceased. The winds that gave them a hard time crossing the Sea of Galilee ceased the moment Jesus entered. And in Matthew, Matthew also said that when Jesus stepped into the boat, the winds ceased and the water became still. Not only that, Matthew also adds a detail that only he has in his story, wherein when they saw Jesus walking on water, Peter said, if it is you, Lord, call me out to you, and I shall go to you. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and started walking on water towards Jesus. So aside from Jesus, Peter was the only human being that ever walked on water, aside from Jesus. But as he saw the winds and the waves, he became distracted and he began to sink. 
and his faith was failing at the time, and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, please save me. And the Lord saved him and brought him up, and together they went into the boat. They walked on water again. And Jesus said to Peter, why did you doubt? Oh, you little faith. They got into the boat from the water, and then the winds and the waves were stilled. So those are some of the details that John did not mention. But these three accounts are accounts of three people with three different perspectives, three different audiences, and three different reasons why they wrote this account. But negation does not mean that it's a disproof of the other. John simply didn't mention all the other details because this account in the book of John is actually part of the greater narrative, the greater pericope of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And right after that, after the 5,000, it was late, they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks on water, crossed to the other side, and then the crowds the next day realized that Jesus and the disciples were no longer there, and they looked for him there on the other side of the lake. And they saw him there, and that's where they had the discourse on the bread of life. So this is all part. So basically, the discussion on the miracle of the feeding the 5,000 with the multiplication of bread and fish is connected to this course on the bread of life. And there's an intermission of Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee by walking on water. So this is part of the whole pericope or the narrative, which leads to a point. And we're going to get to that later. So this particular narrative in John happened after the miracle of feeding the 5,000, or at least 5,000, which we talked about last week. So the fact here is this. On the surface, it may seem like there are differences there, but the main point is not to sink all the details. The main point is this. These are two eyewitness accounts, John and Matthew. They were two of the 12 disciples who became apostles. They were part of this group that for lack of a better term, inner circle, so to speak, okay, of Jesus. And these 12 disciples who later became apostles went with Jesus in all his ministry. They were with him. They were personally discipled by Jesus and raised up to be the leaders of his church that he was going to birth, okay, after he ascended to heaven. They had a certain privilege, and the 12 disciples had the benefit of Jesus explaining every parable to them. When the other people who would hear him would try to figure out what the parable meant, Jesus would explain the parables plainly to them. They had that privilege. And also, they were eyewitnesses of this account. So they were there in the boat. As we look at this narrative, I want to ask three questions here that I would like for us to answer as we go through the narrative. And these questions are as follows. What was Jesus communicating to his disciples? Basically, we're going to look at what did it mean then to the original disciples in the story. And then we're going to look at what was John communicating to his audience. So we're going to look at what John wanted to convey to his audience, why he wrote this, and why he told the story. Okay, what did it mean to John's audience? And then lastly, we're going to ask the question, how is this story speaking to us today. How is it relevant to us today? So in other words, we're going to look at what this story means for us today.
What did it mean to his disciples at the time of the actual event? What did it mean for uh, John's audience as they heard John tell of this event? And what does it mean for us today as we hear of this event? We're going to try to answer those questions. So let's go to the narrative itself. Verses 16 and 17 says there, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. We see here, it was evening. Now remember, this was during the same day of the feeding of the 5,000. There were at least 5,000 people there. The feeding of the multitudes, basically. The miraculous feeding of the multitudes. And if you remember in that story that we read last week, it says there it was getting late. And that's why Jesus was concerned. Because if they send them away, there were no nearby towns there. Because they were in a desolate place. So Jesus said, what can we feed them? But he already knew what he was going to do. Then the miraculous provision of feeding the multitudes took place. And as they got their fill, it it was already evening. And then when evening came, so basically this refers to later on in the evening. So it's not early evening, it's later in the evening. The disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And Jesus was not with them. Now, why did they leave Jesus? If you look at this, what happened there? Why did they leave Jesus behind? And in this account, a few verses before this, Jesus went up to the mountainside to escape, actually, what the people were thinking of doing. Because they perceived that he was the prophet that was to come, they wanted to take him by force. Or in other words, kidnap him and install him as their king. They want to make him their king right now. And the king of their making, the king that is in their minds. This is how my king should be. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not going to be defined by you. He didn't say that, but in essence, that's pretty much what he said. So he withdrew to a mountain. And in the account of Matthew and Mark, it says there, Jesus dispersed or dismissed the crowd. And then he went up in the mountain. So basically, he did not go with what the people were thinking. And they left Jesus. The disciples left Jesus. Well, actually, if we look at Matthew 14, the parallel account in the book of Matthew, we'll see the reason why the disciples left Jesus behind. It was because Jesus basically commanded them, compelled them to go to the other side. He said there, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. They received a directive from the Lord. As I was studying this, you know, I'm no Greek expert. So the New Testament is written in Greek. The phrase that was used to translate, they, he made the disciples get into the boat. The phrase that was used there in the Greek speak of him compelling them to go. He sent them out to the other side to go before him. They were going to meet him there. How he would get there, he did not say. Go on ahead of me. He commanded the disciples to go. And in verse 18 As the disciples were attempting to cross the Sea of Galilee, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, the Sea of Galilee, or it's also called the Sea of Kinnereth or Lake Kinnereth, or it's also called the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, those three names. It is connected to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. 
it's filled with salt. How many of you have been to Israel? And I'm told that the Dead Sea, the reason why it's called dead is because there's no living thing there that can be sustained because of the concentration of salt in that lake. You actually float on the lake. Okay, some people float anywhere, but here you'll float even more. And you can have a selfie, like three-fourths of your body sticking out of the water. People have actually told me that. My friends who've gone on Israel study tours, they said that you could actually float there. The Dead Sea, it's connected to the Jordan River, and the Jordan River connects to the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And here, this lake is teeming with life. Pastor Steve Merle described it to us. As you look at the Dead Sea, it's, there's a reason why it's called dead. And no movement, no life. But here on the Sea of Galilee, you will see the waves, the water is moving, it's teeming with life. And the topography around this lake, the Lake Kinneret, is, it is surrounded by mountains in such a way that the winds pass through those mountains and drop onto the Sea of Galilee, which causes the sea to be moving. And many times, so it's always wavy. And in this particular night, the wind was blowing hard. And it says there, in verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking. But we have more details in Mark chapter 6. And in Mark 6, it tells us that as they went out, Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. They were straining at the oars. How many of you have done rowing or kayak? You've rowed. It's nice at first, right? But when you're going against the wind, I remember last summer when we went to Lake Tahoe, my kids and I, we were on kayaks, and it was so windy. It was so hard. So it was easy when our backs are against the wind and the wind was pushing us. It's pushing us towards the shore. But we would try to go out away from the shore took like the effort to get to a certain distance out away from the shore against the wind and against the waves. Now here, they were straining at the oars. They were exerting a lot of effort. And it says there, they've only rowed about three or four miles. That's long, but we will see that they were rowing practically the whole evening. From the time they left until the fourth watch, which... The Hebrews divide the evenings into three watches, but Romans divide the evenings in four watches. And the fourth watch is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And Jesus began walking towards them on the fourth watch, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they've been doing that all night, straining at the oars, going against the wind, achieving only three or four miles. The wind was against them. Now, oftentimes, they were facing this difficulty because they obeyed what Jesus told them to do. How many of you have experienced some challenges, some difficulties, some opposing winds against you because you obeyed Jesus? How many of you have experienced that? Can I tell you this? When you obey Jesus, he will sometimes send you out in the dark, knowing that there will be opposing winds that will face you. But he sends you out anyway. They were straining. They're doing their best. Our Lord said, we need to go to the other side so we're going. But there's so much opposition. But we're still going. We're faithful. We're faithful in following Jesus and His command to us. We're faithful to keep the law. We're faithful to keep the commands. We're faithful to His word. 
We're faithful to the pattern that He has given us. And there's so much opposition. Sometimes those opposition come from people you know. It's a reality of life, especially of the Christian life. And sometimes we find ourselves straining at the oars. Oftentimes we will find ourselves straining against opposing winds as we do the will of God. That's the reality. The good thing is this. In the midst of your straining at the oars, look at what it says here. He saw the disciples. Jesus was watching over them. He stayed behind. He was watching over them. At night, in a windy night, probably in a stormy night, three or four miles out, how could he see that? Some people are saying, how could he see that? Well, either it was not raining, it was just really windy, or we forget the fact that he's God. 100% man, 100% God at the same time. The point is, he saw them, he's watching them. You see, when we are struggling, Jesus sees it. He is watching over us, even in our struggle. That should comfort you. That should comfort us. And the next part of that verse says there, shortly before dawn, this is the NIV, in the ESV it says the fourth watch, so that means it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He went out to them, walking on the lake. Now some people have said, oh, you know what, actually, it's easy to explain because when he walked there, the Sea of Galilee has so many stones that actually you can walk on top of the stones. It seems like you're walking the water. People try to rationalize things like that. Just like my religion professor in college, he said, you know, it was just low tide when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. God didn't really, it's impossible that that phenomenon would happen, that he would part the Red Sea. So chances are there was just a low tide. That's why they were able to cross the Red Sea. Well, I told him, you know what? Even if it was a low tide, it's still an amazing miracle because the Egyptians died in the low tide. Anyway, Jesus was walking on the lake and he was about to pass them. Wow. He was about to pass them. That was the miracle there. Now, what does it mean? Well, it just simply means that Jesus has power over nature. He has control over nature. He has power beyond nature. That's why it's called supernatural, above the natural, beyond the natural. Looking at Jesus, he is the one who created everything. And he's the one who sustains all things, all of creation. He sustains with the power of his word, the Bible says. So it's no difficult thing for him to do that. But why did he do it? Because there was a message that he has for his disciples. There was something that he wanted them to catch. You see, this miracle took place. No crowd was looking. It was only the 12 disciples who saw this thing. And then in verse 19, it says there, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Now, imagine, open up your imagination here, okay? You're in that boat. It's already a challenge, and you're probably scared because it's dark and it's windy to the point that you're really struggling. And remember, most of them were seasoned fishermen. They spend most of their time on that lake, and they know about those winds. And when those winds are like that, they know that they're not supposed to be out there. Now here, they're out there in these terrible winds, 
at night when it was dark. And their strength is failing. They're probably frightened for their lives. And then here, you're already afraid. And guess what you see? You see a form of a man walking on top of the water. At first, you can't figure out what that, but it's a shape of a person. And it's walking at night. It's kind of scary, right? I mean, I would be scared. That's impossible. And so what did they say? Okay, Matthew 14 gives us more detail on this particular moment. They were frightened. Why were they frightened? So when the disciples saw him walking on the sea in Matthew 14, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I mean, their lives were in danger because of their predicament. But they were terrified when they saw what they thought was a ghost. Fear and superstition combining, and now they're terrified. How many of you have seen a ghost? How many of you want to see a ghost? When you see a ghost, you go, eh, that's cool. From what I hear people say, some people, they claim that they see things. I see dead people. And when they see those things, they have a sensation that grips their entire body and like all the strands of hair on their body. Have you felt that? Some of you felt that like, I haven't seen one, but I sure have felt one. Now, they were scared. And in their mindset, in the Hebrew mindset, in this Hebrew superstition, usually when they see apparitions like that, or what they claim, these portend to be messengers of bad news or something to be afraid of or maybe even death. And so when they saw that, they were afraid. They were terrified. It's a ghost! And they were all scared because they all saw this form walking on the water. So that's why they were scared. And I don't blame them. You see, in the middle of the night, wee hours in the morning, between 3 and 6 a.m., with the winds blowing like that and the waves crashing and we're almost going to die and we're tired and we're fearing for our lives and then we see this, I don't blame them. They did not recognize Jesus at first and they actually mistook him for an apparition a phantasm or a ghost. The reason why they're afraid is because they never expected Jesus to come to them in that manner. They've seen him perform miracles, but they've never seen anything like this. I mean, every time Jesus performs a miracle, that's all they say. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. They're always filled with awe. And here's the thing. Jesus comes to us in our struggle as we do his will. He comes to us in our struggle, especially when it is darkest and hardest. And he comes in an unexpected, even miraculous manner that many times we don't recognize. And we respond in fear. But here Jesus said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. In Matthew and in Mark, it says there, Take courage or take heart. It is I, don't be afraid. So basically, Jesus revealed himself to them. It is I. It is I, your master. It is I, your Lord. And so that brought assurance to the disciples. But as we look at this verse, the, the phrase that is translated, it is I, many Bible scholars suggest that the Greek phrase, ego eimi, ego means I, Amy, it is, but it can also mean to be or am. 
So when it's put together, it's I am. And it's interesting. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses ego eimi. And God's saying that he is I am. So they suggest that he was declaring an I am motive there. Revealing who he is. Giving a peek to what it is. And some people say that's a little bit of a stretch because the nuances of the phrase don't really say that. But as you look at the arrangement, it can mean that as well. Some people say it is Jesus saying, I am here. God is here. But some Bible scholars are saying, no, let's take it for what it really is. It's just Jesus saying, I am here. It is I, Jesus. Don't be afraid. I'm not a ghost. So I just want to present to you what Bible scholars are debating regarding this. And he says, do not be afraid. When Jesus said this, perhaps this brought back some memories for the disciples. See, this was not the first time that Jesus did something miraculous at night with the waves and the wind. They were in a boat. This is in Matthew 14. Prior to that, in Matthew chapter 8, the disciples were crossing the lake again with Jesus. And there was a storm, and Jesus was on the boat, but he was sleeping. Remember that account? He was asleep, and it was storming, and then the disciples were like, Ah! I'm going to die! And Jesus was like, sleeping in your trouble. He goes, don't you care? We're going to die. They wake him up. And he goes, oh, you have little faith. And then he rebukes the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden, there was a stillness. He calmed the storm. To which they said, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? What kind of man is this? They were terrified with this man. Remember, every time Jesus does something miraculous, it overwhelms them. Remember when Peter said, there's no fish. Cast it on the right side. Okay, we've been doing this. You're talking to a fisherman by trade. Okay, we'll just do what you say. And then, a miraculous catch of fish. Peter falls down to his knees and says, I'm a sinful man, Lord. Go away from me. He was filled with awe. And so perhaps when Jesus said, do not be afraid, they probably remember the time. When they were reeling for their lives, they were afraid they were going to die. And our Lord is sleeping. Ah! And then Jesus told them, you have little faith. You see, if I'm in your boat, there's nothing to worry about. They probably remember that when Jesus said, do not be afraid. And you see, from the time they were called by Jesus, and every miracle that they were seeing Jesus perform, what was Jesus doing? He was revealing himself to the world, especially to his disciples. He was revealing who he really is. And in John 6, 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat. You see, they were terrified. They were fearful. They were frightened. They were tired. And all of a sudden, when they heard it was Jesus, they remembered the last time. And all of a sudden, the fear left. Everything left, and they were glad. They were filled with assurance. They were filled with joy. They were filled with wonder again, with gladness as well. And they invited Jesus into the boat. And here's another thing here. It says there, as Jesus went in the boat, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Many Bible scholars say that was another miraculous thing that happened. Because when Jesus caught up with them, they were pretty much not in their destination. But once he got into the boat, all of a sudden they were there. How to explain it? I don't know. The only explanation is it's a miracle. You see, Jesus does miracles anyway. Mark 6 gives us more detail. 
And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And they reached their destination. As, as we bring this to a close, I said we're going to try to address three questions. First one is this. What was Jesus communicating to his disciples? What he was communicating to his disciples was this. He was revealing himself to them. He was revealing who he really is. He was giving them chances, sign after sign, to point to the reality of who he really is. He's not just a man. Okay? He's not just a man. And in Matthew 14, verse 33, after Jesus got into the boat, after he and Peter got into the boat, here's the response in the boat. It says there, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And the Son of God, that is the theological reference to basically the second person of the Trinity. Before he was Jesus, he was preexistent as the Son of God. But they did not know that yet. But they just said, truly you are the Son of God. How did they know that? It is by revelation. After all the signs they've been seeing, now it's making sense. You're not just, you truly you are the Son of God. He was revealing himself for who he really is. And this is connected to the story of the bread of life. In John's account, the revelation took place after they got to the other side. In Matthew's account, it was there. So which is which? I say it's both. Again, it's the perspective of Matthew here. Can we say here today that all of us have the same revelation of Jesus? That all of us have the same revelation? We're at the same maturity level, in spiritual maturity level? Can we all say that? We can't because we are in different journeys. We are at different levels, but we are on that journey nonetheless. So here, Matthew said it was in the boat. They worshipped him. And then in John 6, after Jesus talked about the bread of life and then the crowds, remember this last week, the crowds couldn't take it and they left Jesus. The ones who followed him before now couldn't take his teaching. They left. And so he turned to his disciples, the 12, and he asked them, do you want to leave as well? Remember that last week? You want to leave as well? Here's what they said. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The equivalent of this, in, the parallel of this is in Matthew 14. Matthew 16, when Jesus said, remember they already had this revelation, and Jesus said, who do people say I am? Some say you're the prophet Elijah. Some say you're this and that. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter goes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. He got it. And that's where God wants us to be. He wants us to come to know Jesus for who he really is. And here, when Jesus said to Peter, and I tell you, this is revealed to you, but not by man, but by my Father in heaven. This revelation, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Then he calls him by a new name. You see, here's the thing. The more we know who Jesus is, the more we will come to know who we really are. The more revelation of God we have, the more we will understand and have a revelation of who we really are and why God created us. What did John communicate to his audience? He basically communicated the same revelation to his audience. See, this is what we got from Jesus. This is what I'm telling you now. So what does this mean for us today as we close here? 
How is this story speaking to us today? This story is a picture of us, individual believers, and of the church, corporately. Jesus sends us out in the dark places, armed with his command to go, and we obey, and as we obey, we face opposition, and sometimes we will be straining, struggling, and in the darkest time, and in the hardest time of our struggle, Jesus watches over us, Jesus sees us, and he goes to us. His presence is with us. In his presence, he assures us, it is I. I am is here. Your great I am is here. See, when Jesus is with us, it doesn't matter what the winds are doing. When Jesus is with us, we will be glad. There is a joy that overcomes the adversity that we are living in. Because we will come to know that my circumstance is real, but I am before one who is greater than the circumstance, who controls all things. Leave and end with, with this. How is this story relevant to us today? How is it speaking to us today? Basically, Jesus reveals himself to us in our struggles in the darkest time, when it is darkest and when it is hardest. And he reveals himself to us in unexpected ways, even in miraculous ways. The whole point is to reveal Jesus to us. Basically, what John is saying is, these signs are written so that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That you may have life. Real life. Not the life the world has defined for you. But the life the creator your creator has defined for you. The reason why you were created, you will find that life. And you see, it's not enough for us to recognize Jesus in the storm, in the darkest and hardest time of our struggle. It's not enough for us to recognize Jesus. We need to have him in our boat. We need to have him in our lives. People recognize Jesus. It's Jesus but they don't let him in their lives. Jesus wants us to participate in his life so that when we put our trust in him, his life will be in us. You can see the disciples who became the apostles, their lives were so transformed by the revelation of who Jesus is that the power of God was upon them. They were uneducated men, but the people around them Realize where did these people get this power and all this wisdom? And people realized these men had been with Jesus. And Jesus transformed them. And these are the men that brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the fruit of it we enjoy today. Father, many of us are struggling right now and in our hard times, in the most difficult times, and even in our darkest times. And I can sense that many of you are in that moment right now when you're struggling right now in your faith. You're struggling with Jesus called you to do this and yet there's so much opposition. It seems like there's nothing happening and you're being threatened and you're being discouraged and you feel like giving up and it's a dark time and it's a hard time. These are the times that Jesus comes to you. The question is, will you recognize Him? And more importantly, Will you let him in your boat? Will you let him in your life? 
when Jesus got into the boat, their fear was immediately replaced with gladness, with joy, with assurance, and with worship. All of a sudden, what was happening around them did not matter. And once Jesus got into the boat, Jesus dealt with the situation. And they were able to reach their destination. Jesus wants to reveal himself to you. And that's why you've experienced miracle after miracle. You may have recognized the miracle. And some of those miracles you did not recognize. But those miracles, those signs are pointing to the greater reality of who Jesus is. And as you come to know him for who he really is, you will come to know for who you really are. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts and that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you better, that we may know the hope of our calling, that we may know why you created us. And as we come to know you more, we will understand ourselves more and why you created us. But Lord, it starts with recognizing you, acknowledging you, and having you take control of our boats, having you take control of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.